Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Today we will be talking about the history of the Native American Church of Canada and its unusual mixture of Christian and Indigenous beliefs based on the use of peyote, a type of cactus with psychoactive properties similar to LSD. It's my great pleasure to interview Erica Dick, Professor and Canada Research Chair in the History of Medicine. We will talk about her book, A Culture's Catalyst, Historical Encounters with Peyote and the Native American Church in Canada. She joins me from her academic home at the University of Saskatchewan. Erica, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Thanks very much, Greg. It's nice to be here. Now, your book was based on an unpublished manuscript that you found in an archive. Can you describe to us how you made this discovery in the first place? What were you working on at the time? Yeah, I was a graduate student at the time when I was sifting through records that had been deposited by Abram Hoffer, who was a psychiatrist in Saskatchewan, working first on LSD and psychedelic therapies, so mescaline and LSD in particular, and uh, and then later went on to work on megavitamin therapies, all within the domain of psychiatry. And it turns out that his sister, Fanny Cahan, who had been a journalist, had helped put together this manuscript about peyote after they had visited a peyote ceremony. And the manuscript was never published, and so it was sort of tucked away in amongst uh, several boxes of papers donated by her brother. Well, tell us about Fanny Cahan. Who was she, anyway, besides being a journalist? Well, she, Fanny was part of a, a family that lived in rural Saskatchewan. They were part of a, Jura, a Jewish rural settlement program. And there were a few different families that had come to southern Saskatchewan to settle and create these, these sort of um, Jewish communities on the prairies. So it was a large family. There were five kids in the Cahan Hoffer family, or sorry, in the, in the Hoffer family. Um, Fanny was one of those children. Abram Hoffer was the other. And, and uh, Fanny was really interested in writing from an early age. In fact, um, she wrote a book with her mother called Land of Hope, named uh, with her mother, Clara Hoffer. And they wrote about this whole settlement process of coming to Canada from Israel and setting up this community and working on the farm and what that had meant to the family as a, you know, what Saskatchewan had meant as a destination for the family. Um, But within the next generation, most of that family had left the farm and left this small, now extinct village called Hoffer, Saskatchewan. And Fanny met and married her then would-be husband, Erwin Cahan, who became one of the directors of the Canadian Mental Health Association. Both with Erwin and her brother, Abe Hoffer, who I mentioned was a psychiatrist uh, in Saskatchewan, she became very, very interested in the history and contemporary studies going on in mental health studies. And so she'd, she'd written quite a few pieces, some published books, some more in the line, along the line of pamphlets, uh, newspaper articles. And ultimately, she got a job at the Winnipeg Free Press, where she continued to apply her trade as a writer and a journalist. Um, but she died in the 1970s, and so it's really through working with her family, her children, uh, that I was able to get access and permission to bring this book to light. Well, this is fascinating. The Champlain Society, as you know, was established in order to publish journals, uh, diaries, letters, and the narratives 
of individuals who were important to the history of Canada but uh, never published their work. So what you've done is very similar to what we do on a regular basis uh, in the Champlain Society. But how did you go about putting this into an edited book, and what was your contribution to it? Well, I actually, uh, I really have to give credit to one of my colleagues who works in San Francisco. Bia Labate is an anthropologist and a social activist and a, a an extraordinary writer in her in her own domain. And I had quoted from this manuscript while I was putting together a chapter on the history of peyote use in Canada, which I did under her direction. And she said, you know, this is fantastic stuff. It's marvelous, and, uh, you know, you should try to get it published. And so I, I hadn't really thought of it before. And uh, I started asking around with both with the archivists, but also started to ask members of the family. So Hoffer's daughter, who retains access. um, She grants me access to the archival collections of her father. Um, But because Fanny's material was kept within her father's domain, we figured that it would be appropriate to contact Fanny's children as well. And this put me in touch with a whole world of of people for whom I'd studied their parental generation. But I met all of these wonderful people from the the extended Hoffer family, including um, Melden Cahan, who is currently an addiction specialist working in Toronto. It was really interesting getting in touch with some of the folks who were familiar with this as children, but also who are currently engaged in some of the contemporary efforts at challenging addictions as well as racism within our mental health care system. And um, we, we discussed the possibility of trying to have it published and at that time, I was working on another project with the University of Manitoba Press, and I mentioned this to them, and they were very open to the possibility of exploring different ways that we might bring this text to light. Um, as we went through it and realized that there were several sections that had been written by others and that it kind of hung together as a historical artifact, um, I then suggested that I could write an introduction to try to set that up a little bit and explain what its purpose might have been at the time and, and speculate a little bit as to why it maybe wasn't published. So we didn't find very much in the records as to why it wasn't published in the first place. Right, and, and it did seem pretty well written to me. And so uh, with your introduction and with the text and, and the shape that it was, it really forms a coherent book, I think. Um, Fanny got contributions, uh, as you have mentioned, from Abram Hoffer, Humphrey Osmond, and Duncan Blewett. Uh, as well as one other individual. Who were these people, and why were they interested in peyote in the first place? Well, it's a really interesting story. So Saskatchewan in the the early 1950s became home to some of the research that was going on and what we later would call psychedelics, but at the time that word hadn't even been introduced. But in drugs like mescaline and LSD, drugs that cause hallucinations and disordered thoughts, and perceptions. And this group of psychiatrists, so Humphrey Osmond and Abram Hoffer were psychiatrists, along with Teddy Wekowitz, who was the other member involved in this collection, who was a psychologist, Duncan Blewett, also a psychologist, in fact, one of the founding psychologists for the Department of Psychology in Regina at the university. Um, And this group of men were very interested in the relationship between disordered perceptions or hallucinations and delusions and psychotic disorders, which were some of the disorders that they were encountering in their clinical practices. And certainly, Humphrey Osmond was encountering regularly through his role as superintendent of the um, Saskatchewan Mental Hospital at Weyburn, which is the the last hospital built in a sort of Gothic Victorian style. 
And they became very interested in what these drugs showed us, so whether they created a kind of model psychosis or a stimulated state where we could, you know, if we could create psychosis through a series of chemicals, perhaps we could, you know, create an antidote to uh, psychosis through some other coordinate combination of chemicals or some other combination of substances. Um, and that was sort of the leading inspiration for some of the work that they were doing. Now, Osmond had come to Saskatchewan in 1951 after answering an advertisement in the Lancet placed there through the auspices of the Tommy Douglas government, which, of course, was engaged in major health care reforms at the time. And so this group of people who might not otherwise have come together got together under the auspices of mental health care reforms as well as larger health reforms and one of the areas of research that they were primarily interested in were these psychoactive substances. Can you just can you just describe the ceremony that Hoffer, Osmond, and Blewett participated in with members of the Red Pheasant Band near North Battleford, Saskatchewan, in 1956? Absolutely. So they'd been studying these chemicals in laboratory settings, but Osmond, uh, well, all of them did, but Osmond was the one who wrote most extensively about, you know, we know that there is a deeper tradition of knowledge and a deeper understanding of these substances in non-Western experiences. And he kept saying, you know, we have to get past the scientific literature. We have to get past the laboratory knowledge. And one of um, one of the things that happened was they were contacted by um, a member of the Red Pheasant Band near North Battleford who had suggested that they come and witness a peyote ceremony. Now, this was sort of a dual-edged, because on the one hand, Osmond was very curious about this and had tried to make himself available already. But on the other hand, the Native American church, particularly in Canada, was under the threat of both federal policies and local um, prejudices surrounding the activities of this church, which was not a, a Canadian-born institution. It was um, the Native American church had started legally in Oklahoma in 1918, but really um, institutionalized a set of practices which are much with a much, much longer tradition of in Latin America and throughout South America and flowing northward into southern Texas and Arizona. And what were these practices, and why were they, uh, why was there so much prejudice against them? Well, it's it's really interesting. In the early 1900s, there were a number of anthropologists who became very interested in the Native American church. And so depending on who you read, you get very different interpretations as to what the controversies were. Um, on the Canadian side of things, by the time the Native American church was looking to establish itself in Canada, the controversy had evolved and the federal authorities were worried that this was an American intervention, that it was uh, there were attempts to Americanize uh, in this case, uh, members of the Red Pheasant Band, but also other members of the uh, Cree Indigenous people throughout Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular. Um, there were concerns that because the organization centered around peyote, uh, that is the cactus, which contains the psychoactive al alkaline mescaline, this is the compound that causes hallucinations um, and may cause symptoms that look similar to psychosis, they were concerned that people were using this church as an excuse to abuse these psychoactive substances. And that's sort of the, the main part of the controversy. And then within that, there were, of course, a whole variety of other accusations, such as, you know, once engaged in these activities, then there were uh, sexual assaults, there were um, 
one of the federal ministers claimed that this was an excuse to have orgies. Uh, there were claims of child abuse and a whole cascading set of issues associated with this, none of which were actually proven in the end. Um, but the reputation of this church and its activities really grew. And so in 1956, when members of the Red Pheasant Band in Saskatchewan contacted Osmond and Hoffer, they did so in an effort to try to get some help from legitimate scientists working in this area to, to help dispel some of those myths and challenge some of the rhetoric that was you know, on display in newspapers and certainly in the um, Minister of Indian Affairs at the time in his correspondence with the Indian agents. And so Osmond, Hoffer, Blewett, and Teddy Wekowitz attended a ceremony in October 1956 they brought with them reporters at the request of the um, indigenous members of the group. There were members from the Native American Church from Montana and North Dakota who came and attended as well. Um, and Humphrey Osmond fully partook in the ceremony in that he also took peyote, and the others um, who were invited members simply watched. They were uh, witnesses to the ceremony. So it was a weekend ceremony. It was, you know... A, a full demonstration with drumming, singing. There was a feast two day, uh, on the second day. Um, and Osmond wrote notes throughout this experience and subsequently wrote an essay as a testimony to the what he described as a beautiful, ritualistic, very heavily steeped in spirituality experience and one that he felt should be recommended and encouraged rather than prohibited. Now, I was really struck by Osmond's essay in this book. It really was um, well done. Uh, it captured you. It took you right into the ceremony. But at the same time, there was this analytical voice floating around describing it from a scientific as well as sort of an experiential standpoint. Um, but I, I also know it took him some time to write this essay. What was behind that? Osmond's a really interesting figure in this whole story. Um, by 1956, he was already corresponding on a regular basis with Aldous Huxley. And I think that it's partly through their friendship and that influence um, that he really wanted to take seriously the, the language and the experience of spirituality and what that meant, both in a healing context, but also just in a human context. And I think that part of what we see in the, the sort of struggle to articulate himself in this, and, and he's certainly very articulate, um, but he's much more comfortable in a world of describing sort of scientific language, and that's how he was trained. But here we can see him really sort of stretching out and trying to hone his skills as an empathic observer and, and one who really wants to take people's perspectives seriously. And that certainly is the, sort of at the core of his being all the way through his practice as a psychiatrist as well as, as a writer. But we start to see the, the sort of influence of Huxley and his admiration for a, a deeper, more philosophical way of looking at the ceremony as well. So how does this story of the Native American Church of Canada connect to the broader history of Indigenous settler relations in North America, particularly how it has been written in the last 20 years? It's, it's a great question and, and one that I feel rather ill-equipped to answer, and, and I think um, it's Part of my, my hesitation in, in answering is because I really am, am relatively new to, to this field of study. I have come out of medical history and sort of stumbled upon this. But, um, but what I've learned along the way uh, 
is that there there are massive changes going on in the way in which this history is being understood and explored. And I think it helps, if I can sort of sidestep the question, um, I think it helps to explain perhaps why Fanny Cahan's book was not published at the time that it was. By the time it was assembled and by the time she was ready to have it published, it was the early 1960s. We have a rejection letter from so the, the University of New Mexico Press, for example, that I believe came out in 1965. I think that's when the letter was, um, suggesting that you know it wasn't really the time to publish this. And I think it not only the, – the, the timing of her publication not only taps into the history of psychedelics at a time when – at a time when their reputation was changing, but also the notion of indigenous uh, settler relations were changing at that time. And here again, I think there's now, the book can come out at a time when there's a reopening of that relationship in a very open and legal way, You know, with, particularly in the wake of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There just seems to be a much more openness to a dialogue that unpacks some of this history. And so that's my attempt to sidestep the question and, and suggest that maybe now we, we can look at this and appreciate some of the things that were going on that I'm not sure were as explicit. Well, I think very much they weren't that obvious to the writers at the time who were describing the uh, indigenous settler relations. Well, it's certainly, it's you, you feel like there are uh, throwbacks to sort of the uh, literature that relates to indigenous peoples is heroic and it follows that stream but then there is this very modernist perspective in which uh, to borrow John Borrow's phrase uh, in which there is almost a demand for uh, respect and for cultural exchange that uh, that settlers have as much to learn from indigenous people as vice versa and that this should be a more equal exchange rather than uh, one which is uh, based upon that colonial legacy and uh, and almost conquest and and so you you feel you feel like you're torn between those two different perspectives that flow through the book, particularly through Fanny Cahan's manuscript. Would that be an accurate way to describe it, or would you contest that? Uh, I think you're right. I I think that one of the things that can be a bit jarring in reading the manuscript is some of the language seems dated, and it is just a, a kind of quick reminder, and it, it immediately sort of jars the modern, the, today's reader, um, and reminds us of the time period in which this was written, you know, that there there were some there's some fairly strong language that they use, and yet the tone and the approach is very respectful and very deferential. And so the two are, create this kind of interesting mix, and I think it it's important, I think, to make the reader a bit uncomfortable and really try to use that as an opportunity to unpack some of the that discomfort, which helps us to think a little bit differently and perhaps reflect a little bit on this time period. So here we've got people who are very interested in learning from the Red Fez, in this case, the the group of uh, members of the Red Pheasant Band who came together. Um, but at the same time, the language that they use sometimes is rather stigmatizing and certainly makes assumptions about what people are bringing to the ceremony. Um, and so I, I think it's a really rich opportunity now to think back on those on the tensions that existed in the 1950s. You're not going to like this question, but do you think that there are any political and policy lessons that we can draw from the history of the Native American Church in Canada? I'm sure there are there are many different policy lessons, and I think one of the things that that really you know there was sort of two 
two layers here that really struck me. One was that it this ceremony in 1956 came at a time when um, federal bureaucrats were discussing changes to the Indian Act um, and changes that historians have now described, you know, further entrenched a colonial uh, relationship and a very paternalistic relationship. So further removing certain rights, but also trying to provide for an opportunity for cultural exchange. So um, relaxing some of the laws that prohibited particular cultural practices. And it's interesting to see here where in this case, the peyote ceremony, which was not a traditional practice of of uh, Cree people, um, it's an imported practice, but it follows a different kind of tradition. It's interesting to see how that moment challenges some of the the policy thinking at the time. And I think it's very interesting to help us to think about where what counts uh, or whether it matters to consider what is a traditional practice, what is an indigenous practice, or what's just a good practice for humans to get along and for cooperation and coordination across a variety of groups. I think it's also really interesting to see how the reputation of the substances themselves were described and, and how that reputation had con continued to prohibit the use of these substances either because they were associated with an indigenous practice, which was difficult to classify as either medicinal or spiritual or really anything, and a practice that had some therapeutic benefits that scientists were trying to explore at the same time. And I think they sort of get caught between these two poles, and so it doesn't really move forward. What we do know is that pushing drugs or ideas underground forces them to take on some kind of... Um, people will still practice either in this spiritual way or they will still engage in drug use in ways that we actually have a more difficult time regulating. And so uh, I guess that's not really a very clear policy suggestion other than I think that it's better not to push people to take greater risks and to hide these practices, but to keep things open so that we can actually um, invest in better public health strategies. Well, as we're going through the... Uh process of legalizing marijuana, we're probably going to see some of the opportunities to apply some of these policy lessons. Erica, thank you so much for this interview today. Thanks for having me. This is the Champlain Society podcast, Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshallton, and my guest today was Erica Dick on A Culture's Catalyst, Historical Encounters with Peyote in the Native American Church in Canada, a based on a manuscript originally prepared by Fanny Cahan with Abram Hoffer, Duncan Blewett, Humphrey Osman, and Teodoro Wekowitz, published by the University of Manitoba Press, 2016. This interview was recorded at the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Sumit Dami. Thank you all. Mm -hmm.